Welcome to the Principles of Performance podcast, where we discuss how to optimize your health, fitness, and performance. Drawing on decades of experience of working as coaches, consultants, and trainers to top performers, athletes, and teens from professional sports to top universities to the U.S. military, Eric Degatti and Mike Perry discuss topics and strategies of how to perform at your highest level and be your very best. Join us and our friends and colleagues who are leaders in the fitness and performance industry as we investigate and challenge the most popular training, nutrition, lifestyle, and recovery protocols. Away we go. Here we are with episode number 54 of the Principles of Performance podcast. I am your host, Eric Degatti, along with my co-host, Mike Perry. And we have another stellar, stellar show for, for us today, Perry. Yeah, we do. We've got this uh, this guy from, from Maine that knows something about baseball. So it's uh, pretty cool to have this guy on. No, uh, you know, I've, I've known Eric for a very, very long time. Um, early on when I started my career, gosh, 20 years ago, he was a guy that uh you know i had heard of and um you know through through my mentors in the baseball world i i learned about eric and and uh you know he's been one of those guys in in massachusetts in new england that's been a staple in the strength and conditioning industry and uh you know one of the most respected guys out there so we're we're really excited to have eric today so eric it's uh it's awesome to have you here and i'm gonna i'm gonna have mr degatti go through your bio because uh i just can't read very well <laughs> All right. So, so let me introduce you to Eric Cressy for those who are unaware and live under a rock. Um, he's the president co-founder of Cressy Sports Performance with uh, facilities in both Hudson, uh, Massachusetts and Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. And he's perhaps most well-known for his extensive work, as Mike said, with baseball players, with his role that uh, he has now with the New York Yankees as the director of player health and performance. And he's also an accomplished author. I've read a ton of stuff that he's done, over 500 published articles that's been in everything from men's health to men's fitness, ESPN, you name it. Um, he's also had a bunch of different books and DVD sets that sold all over the world. He speaks all over the world in different countries. Um, he's also on the advisory board for the IYCA and Precision Nutrition uh, and a baseball consultant to New Balance and has some very cool Cressy New Balance sneakers, which uh, is something that we all aspire to. Um, he also served as strength and conditioning coach for USA Baseball under 19 national team that won the gold medal in 2015 in Japan. And he's also, uh, he also walks the walk. He, he's a, a very good power lifter, holds several state national world records. Um, he's hit four, four 540 on the squat, 402 on the bench, 650 on the deadlift, and 1530 in a total. I actually got to see Eric deadlift uh, up at his facility when I went up for his pitching internship. I, I told him it was like watching Jimmy Page play Stairway to Heaven. It was pretty cool. Um, but all that being said, he's an all-around awesome guy, and, and we are super, super thrilled to have him on the show. Eric Cressy, welcome. Thanks, guys. Appreciate the uh, the warm intro. That was, that was too much, but you're very kind. Awesome. So, so the first question I want to know is you got two huge facilities, two different States, two young kids, podcasts, books, articles, and director of performance for the, one of the largest sports teams in the world. Like where do you fit it all? And when do you sleep? Yeah. You know, it's actually it's three kids, believe it or not. So I, I'm, uh, I'm extra overwhelmed compared to what you described, but um, no, I think the solution is multifactorial. Um, I think the first thing is I have an incredibly understanding wife who who also is a is a workaholic just like I am. So I think um, there's strength in numbers, and we both tend to be pretty type A with trying to manage a rigorous schedule and, and being very meticulous with a lot of our planning. So um, you know I, I've always said like in the context of a gym that every hour of training requires an hour of planning, whether that's programming or logistics behind the scenes or anything like that, and. I think just the way you organize your time, uh, you know, does that as well. So, um, you know, I, I, if, you know, in the context of having two facilities and the Yankees responsibility, um, you know, I'm fortunate to have some really good people that really take the lead with our Massachusetts facility. So I'm not, you know, an everyday presence there. I, I still have involvement, but not nearly as much as I used to. So um, I kind of stepped away from the Massachusetts role to focus, you know, much heavily, uh, more heavily on the Florida facility. And then obviously the kind of the nature of the Yankees and the offseason role is they, they, they are pretty much, you know, the yin and the yang in terms of the time of year where, you know, things are crazy during the season for the Yankees and maybe a little bit quieter in the offseason, whereas things are crazy in the offseason at the 
the business and then a little quieter once the major league season starts. So I, I was able to kind of pull those two things off and, um, you know, I was fortunate to have, you know, really, you know, uh, I guess accommodating organization to work with that helped us design this, uh, you know, position and, and build out departments in, in creative ways. So it's, it's worked out well, but it, it takes a lot of planning and it takes a lot of reliance on just really good people that, that, you know, hold up their end of their bargain as well. Well, another testament to you, and, and I want to get your insight on it, but we had, you know, your good friend, Tony Genelacor, who made a point to, to point out in his bio that it should have been called Cressalacor, you know, training systems <laughs> in the beginning. But yeah. but Tony said, and and then also talking to Pete Dupuy, who I ran into uh, at the Perform Better Summit down in Orlando, they both said that you are almost cyborg like in terms of your 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 work ethic in terms of and that's always been the way since day one. Is that what you attribute a lot of your success to, or is there some other magic trick that you have? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think, uh, so yes. I mean, I, I think we're, you know, we're all mindful of like that people have different levels of of kind of work ethics. You know, I, you know, I fell back on like a, a career as a power lifter where I was really steadfastly devoted to that goal really, really early on. You know, what I really think it comes back to is like I... I've just made a lot of sacrifices to to be that that kind of crazy with my my professional career. Um, you know, like I I don't drink. You know, I my social life is largely driven through my, you know my kids and you know our our athletes at the gym. Like, so I I think I've just been willing to make a lot more sacrifices. Um, you know, for lack of a better term, like I haven't gone on a lot of elaborate vacations and things like that. And obviously we, we've worked to correct that as we've, you know, had a family and things along those lines. But, you know, I think it's just more that I don't really get excited about like just sitting down and watching Netflix or, you know, having like shows. Like I think my wife and I watched 24 together back in the day. And I, I really can't remember the last like TV series that we actually watched together. So, you know, I think a lot of people call, you know, that being like a, a workaholic, but you know, I, I really enjoy what I do. Um, I love the people I work with. Uh, you know, I, I enjoy, you know, kind of figuring things out, you know, and that's one of the cool things about the Yankees is, you know, I, I head up player health and performance, which is strength conditioning and, and nutrition, but we also work in parallel to, you know, kind of a classic sports medicine setup, as well as our performance science department. But I, I have interactions with our hitting department, with you know, our biomechanics lab, with our pitching guys, and it's I love kind of putting puzzles together. Um, and, and so to me, that's way more exciting than watching TV or, you know, sitting by the pools, you know, drinking margaritas or something like that. So I, I just think it has a lot to do with um, making sacrifices is a little bit easier when you absolutely love what you get to take on on a daily basis. So now something you just said kind of is a great segue into to our next point in, in question is you're actually a former tennis player, right? Yeah. And so um, with that, hey, you go from being a tennis player to being the name in baseball training. Is it that there's so much carryover from one sport to the next, or is there just certain KPIs that, that you look for in terms of a sport, a position, and just basically understand, okay, well, what is this this person needs and what is it that they don't have? And then just fill the gap. Is it that simple? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think that's part of it. You know, for sure there are commonalities. I, I kind of fell into the baseball population because my shoulder was a mess from my tennis career. And I, I wanted to figure out, you know, why it was the case and kind of rehab myself and avoided surgery. Um, but it just so happened that I, I fell into working with baseball players when I first went to the private school after, after leaving graduate school. So I think it was a little bit of like a, you know, the old saying is like, uh, you know, success is where, or what is it? Uh, luck is where preparation meets opportunity. So I certainly prepared um, to understand shoulders and all that. And I just happened to fall into a population that could, you know, really benefit from that expertise. And then it was on me to build it out and say, Hey, I need to understand elbows better. I need to understand necks. I need to understand T-spines. Um, so it, it kind of progressed from there, but yeah, the, the tennis thing has actually been, um, you know, an accidental blessing. And, and it's funny because I, we've actually come back around and, you know, worked with a lot of high level tennis players now. And it's, it's actually become like a, a mini niche underneath this baseball community where now, you know, we have some NFL quarterbacks, you know, we, we have some, you know, some top 20 tennis players that work out with us as well. So it's been kind of cool to see how it, it accidentally came full circle. Very cool. So, you know, something that I've noticed uh, over, you know, the last couple of decades is uh, you have this sort of keen ability to be agnostic to any one training modality and you blend everything from PRI to, uh, you know, medicine ball training to, you know, some high level in-depth orthopedic evaluations. So when, when a new method comes out or, or sort of a new trend, uh, what's your vetting process like and, and how do you determine whether or not that's something that you're going to be adding uh, to your current system? 
Yeah. So I think it first comes back to a, an overarching theme of not trying to be like the renegade slash controversy seeker. And I think what we see very commonly are people that just like jump all in on one philosophy and try to exclude everybody else. And it, it, that sensationalized approach of I'm right and you're all wrong. You know what? It works for four to six months. And it, it, but it, at the end of the day, it's a condescending way of looking at things um, just because it, you know, I, I'm sure you guys would both agree, like you go back and you look at what you did 10 years ago and you want to do a face palm, right? Like, you know, it's uh, Mike and I, we probably would have lost our hair a lot earlier if we realized back then how bad what we were doing was. And <laughs> and so I, I always try to take that same level of humility to know that, man, there's a lot of stuff out there that I haven't even encountered, stuff that's done in different languages that we don't even speak. You know, you look at like what the Steckos have done with like fascial manipulation, which was like purely in Italian for a long time until it came to the US. And, you know, that was a course that, you know, I went to earlier this year that, that blew my mind. And I've seen my business partner get some amazing results with it on the manual therapy side of things. So I always just try to be mindful that, um, you know, there's, there are a lot of different philosophies out there. And it's up to us to, to not just borrow bits and pieces from each of them, but to recognize the overlap when they agree on things, right? PRI, DNS, they both include a lot of flexion bias stuff, which can be useful for athletes who are stu stuck in extension, right? Um, so I, I try not to be a renegade you know, seeker and, never, and I try not to seek out controversy, but when it comes to actually evaluating things, I think there, there's, there's a few levels to this. The first one is you have to make sure that you surround yourself with people that are gonna check you. And, and I'm lucky that, you know, you know, on the business side of things, obviously I have Pete, I have my wife, Anna, you know, on, on the training side of things, John O'Neill at our Massachusetts facility has always been great. You know, in our Florida facility, I have Shane, my, my business partner, uh, Matt Hinckley, our pitching coordinator, I, I have Andrew Lissy, you know, who's our, our internship coordinator there, just smart people that you can spitball with. So when you go to that seminar and you get your, your world rocked and you think of all these great things and you come back on Monday morning, the first thing that, that is a great system of checks and balances is you can't just take all the new exercises you learned and start adding them to programs because then you have 10 coaches on your staff that have no idea what the exercise is and you make them look like complete idiots in front of the, uh, the clients, which, which never, ever, ever plays. So my mindset for our staff is when you get exposed to a new philosophy, you need to come back and we need to have a discussion about it, preferably in the, the context of you teaching it as a staff in service. So when I went to SFMA, it was awesome. I loved it. I came back and that Wednesday morning at our facility was, hey, here's here's what I took away from SFMA. Here's how I think it can impact our evaluative approach. Here are maybe some of those holes like that I think we're missing. Like our cervical screens can be a lot better. Let's let's look at you know where this goes. And then what we do when we see a, a DN or a DP on cervical extension, what's the avenue that we, that we take? So I think having good people around you, having a system for who actually um, you know is, is kind of like the screener with you um, and then figuring out where it actually fits in. But, um, you know, I'm going to put my career, I'm, I'm 42. Like I've been doing this over two decades now, which blows my mind. It kind of snuck up on me. If we're going to integrate some of this stuff, it takes wholesale changes, right? Cause I've, you know, got two facilities in the private sector. We've got all of our, our Yankee stuff. I mean, that's coaches in a bunch of different States. We have a, the Dominican Academy, you know, we have all these different levels that have to be brought on board so it's kind of like turning an aircraft carrier in a bathtub sometimes we got to make sure that it's it's rolled out the right way so that nobody's put in an awkward position um, but you're not going to overhaul now you're going to you're going to change you know one or two percent maybe it's a new warm-up exercise maybe it's the way that you coach an old one um, but you definitely got to have a filter it's so important so mike before you jump in with the next one when you have to be this is and to steal a term from Kelly Storette, a savage generalist where you have to yeah. know so many things about so many different things. Mm -hmm. um, you coming in as the strength coach, baseball guy, how is that received when you have to have that same message, go to an infield coordinator, as well as a team orthopedist, as well as, as your you know strength staff in terms of how well it's received, because you know, our roles used to be pretty much stay in the weight room, do your, yeah. you know, do your hour workout and then stay out of the rest of everything else. Now it's, it's not that now you have hybrid roles like you have. How do you find that's getting received in your situation and beyond and other people in, in roles like yours? Yeah, I think it's, um, it's getting better. That, that certainly was a huge issue in the past in professional sports. 
And I think, um, you know, I was fortunate. I worked in, with the Minnesota Twins as a consultant for 2018 and 2019. So I, I kind of got my first foot in the door with, with professional sports as a, you know, way of kind of seeing structures and things like that. And, um, you know, they have a, a very transformational leader, a guy named Derek Falvey, who's their uh, their chief baseball officer. And he's actually a couple of years younger than me, but Derek's a guy who understands like how to empower people and how to create that cross-department um, synergy to really, you know, effectively it's like the rising tide lifts all ships if you do it correctly um and so i, I kind of knew um when the yankees were were reaching out to me about a position that that was something that i thought was a really important uh you know key competency that we needed to to move things in the in the direction that we wanted and i'm fortunate that they, that brian cashman's just an awesome leader um he's a you know like i use the term transformational leader but that, that's you know something you can absolutely apply here in that sense that he makes sure that he finds um you know directors that work very very closely you know, I think the other thing too is um, you never want to feel like, you know, particularly in a large organization like this, that it's it's really really hard to, you know, create change, and it can be like that if you're you're always waiting on like approval from a general manager or, you know, for an, an owner or something like that. And and we're really lucky in the way that we have things structured is that we can pivot really really quickly and you know and take on new projects and things like that. So I'm, I'm lucky. Our director of baseball operations, Matt Ferry, is is kind of my my direct superior who I go to when I have a question, when I have something I need to work through that we're trying to, to pivot. And, and he is just absolutely amazing at not just, you know, getting us connected with different apartments and seeing who else can help the cause, but also always having like a keen eye for understanding how do we systematize this and how do we scale it? How do we make sure that everybody's in the loop? And, um, you know, that's a, that's, that's an amazing, like, ability to have and it's something honestly i've learned from from both of them in the private setting is i never want to be the roadblock to you know our employees you know at csp feeling like they can roll out a new initiative or try something different or just get approval so um it's kind of like when you hear the stories i think it's, it's is it the four seasons that has like the no questions asked if you if you can make a customer happy for you know less than 500 dollars, go ahead and do it like you want your people to really um, you have this mindset of, of failing forward, like at least try and learn from it. You know, it's tuition to the world of entrepreneurship. If we try something, it doesn't work. And as long as it's not a, an egregious mistake, um, you know, then we can always find a, a way forward from it. So I, I, I definitely try to create that mindset. I'm not sure if it, if it nurtured your question or answered your question, but um, it is something that I think we all need to be mindful of is that, you know, we all got to work together. We got to knock down those, those silos and just communicate really regularly with other departments. Yeah, it absolutely seems like it's a, t a team effort, um, almost like an, like an F1 team, if you will. But yeah. so, you know, one of the things that you have to deal with in professional sports is, is injuries and, and, and mm -hmm. injury prevention. And it's one of those things, it's a very, very controversial and, and hotly debated topic because, um, you know, some people say we can't control it. A lot of the research says we cannot. Um, what is your thought process on, you know, injury prevention, injury mitigation, whatever you want to call it? Mm -hmm. And how has it evolved over the course of your career? Yeah. Um, so the first thing I'll say in the evolution aspect of that question might be the most compelling part of the answer, but um, everybody's broken. I, I think we know that, right? You can, you can go and you look at asymptomatic MRIs of, of people and you can find all kinds of stuff, you know, over 90% of, of pitchers, you know, at all levels really have fraying in their labrum. So posterior labral fraying is a normal finding in the throwing shoulder. Um, but what is concerning is that injuries have actually outpaced sports medicine's ability to keep up with them. Um, you know, it's, you know, the injury rates in major league baseball have gone sky high every year. And, and what's scary is the minor league injuries and the, the amateur, you know, side are, are even worse. Um, and I'm, I'm particularly kind of in the mix on this. It's, it's funny that we're talking about this because we're last night was the first night of the major league baseball draft. And, you know, there's been a lot more transparency in the draft medical process with the major league baseball combine for players, you know, where basically players will opt into, you know, various imaging studies and they're all broken, like at every single level. Um, it's, it's absolutely mind boggling to see what 16 year old elbows look like. Um, I actually as a, a saw, a, looked at a family friend's imaging 12 year old kid who tore his UCL, avulsed his medial epicondyle and had a high grade flexor strain. Like that's really hard to do. And one of my uh, my friends coached the team. He's like, I'm beating myself up. This kid was really talented. I, you know, I managed his pitch count. I didn't overuse him. And he didn't tell me until the end of the season that he was pitching for another team at the same time. So the kid was literally doubling up on workload. Oh. And um, so stuff like that, like sports medicine can't keep up with idiocy. It never will. 
Um, so I, I think we, it's, you know, there's a, there's a lot of different angles to this. We'd love to think that the perfect warm up, you know, while it will counteract, you know, a lot of these things, and we'd love to think the perfect training volume and scrutinization of volume and all these things are going to help guys, but the game is just played at such high speeds. Um, you know, like I, I'm actually recording my old own podcast about this in the next couple of days, but really, if you look at major league baseball, average fastball velocity in 2002, it was 89.0. And in 2022, it was 93.6. So average fastball velocity went up by 4.6 miles per hour at the highest level. And what's interesting about that is fastball usage went from 64 to 49%. So they throw 4.6 miles per hour harder, but hitters are so good at hitting fastballs now that we throw 15% fewer fastballs. So sliders are getting nastier, all these different things. And so there's just this, this crazy shift happening right now that's just the the nature of pitching where, you know, they're generally agreed upon that every mile an hour you increase velocity. It's about a 15 to 20% increase in elbow injury risk. You layer shoulders, you layer, you know, necks on top of that. But the more fascinating thing is if you go downstream, there are corrections as players try to keep up with velocity, right? There's more random practice where they're taking more, um, you know, instead of just taking group, easily grooved BP before game starts, they're getting fooled in batting practice. They're hitting more high velo on the machine, which can blow up wrists and thumbs if they're not using foam balls. Um, we see more pit hitters getting hit by pitches. We see more catchers getting foul tips that are blowing up toes and thumbs and creating concussions. Um, there's all these downstream effects to what velocity does. There, there, uh, one thing that's fascinating right now, I actually just pulled the numbers. Um, there was actually a really interesting study that say that showed that in major league baseball pitcher comeback injuries are on the rise in, uh, 2018, they had 19 injuries on pitcher comebacks in 2019, it was 12. And then in 21 and 22 it was six and eight this year, as of May 17th, they had already had 10 injuries to major league pitchers. Then as of right now, we've had three skull fractures in major league baseball. Guys are throwing harder. They're selling out for velocity. They're leaving themselves more vulnerable. And so what you get is a, you know, guys that are also swinging harder. It's just less time to react. The game is just changing so much that when you hear these people like, well, back in my day in 1988, like we played 161 games and no one ever pulled hamstrings. I'm like, yeah, that's because nobody ran fast you were all roided out of your mind and you guys were all using amphetamines to get out there and play when you weren't ready to go. Um, so they've, they've cleaned up the game from a PED standpoint, and then they played it at much higher levels because the training and the nutrition is so much better. Um, so we're in a really, really tough time in baseball where, you know, all these different entities, sports medicine, uh, strength and conditioning, nutrition, uh, performance science, amateur scouting, uh, MLB as a whole, with scheduling and, and, you know, driving the direction of the game at the youth levels, everybody's got to really collaborate to fix this because it's unfortunately going in a really, really bad direction. And, you know, that's obviously super concerning. Now it's ironic. You mentioned this, Eric, because this was actually the burning question when, when I knew we were going to get a chance to talk to you and mm -hmm. because being, you know, having that mindset, similar, like what you're saying is that trying to be that problem solver and whether yeah. it's me, myself sitting there or someone asked me, Hey, you're a strength coach. What's the matter with all these injuries with this team or that team? And I try to think like, Oh, could I have actually done anything about that? And, and to think philosophically to say, okay, well, maybe it's some level and, and, and maybe we can extend it beyond just baseball. Are we starting to tap a little bit into the ceiling of human capacity? Like, are we, is the human body and its structure and chassis just not equipped to handle the repetition of six foot seven, 270 pound people throwing a ball hundred mile an hour plus and hitting it 120 miles an hour. Like, are we starting to get to the capacity where we just, we've created, we've almost gotten so good at creating horsepower that we can't handle it. Um, you know, every time I've thought we're at a ceiling, I've been proved wrong. And if you literally look at how those velocities changed every year, it just seems to tick up by 0.1 to 0.3 miles per hour. Um, you know, on average, we were the hardest throwing team in major league history last year. And the expectation is that we'll exceed it this year, this year again. Um, it's crazy. It's, it's a very interesting time and something that, uh, you know, I don't think anybody really has a perfect solution for the scary thing, though, is not just that the play at the highest levels has really, you know, surged forward. It's it's also that, you know, kids are so good, so young. I mean, obviously, they're hyper specialized, which has its own level of concern. Um, but just to see kids from a pure, you know, uh, 
uh, you know, physics standpoint, you know, throwing a hundred miles an hour at age 17, like those, those arms just don't hold up. We know that they're going to blow out at some point as terrible as it sounds. So it, you know, it obviously impacts draft strategy and, you know, where you invest your resources and all this stuff. So um, no, I, I, I'd like to think that we are going to get to at some point the, to the limits of human performance and then allow ourselves to take a breath and be like, all right, this is what it's going to be. How is it that we, you know, then can can work to prepare athletes better for what this ultimate goal is? But no, I mean, the numbers seem to be escalating every year. We get guys throwing 105, 106 now. Um, you know, it could be 108, 109, 110 someday. And, you know, you're seeing guys hit the ball 120. Um, so it's just a, a really, really scary combination. I think one thing that that eventually is going to have to be addressed, um, and the hope would be that there would be a trickle down effect, is uh, I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit. Is I, I have a lot of friends who work in other professional sports, um, so I mean I was talking with Art Horn, who's you know close friends with the Celtics, um, you know, know Kevin Neal with the Bruins. These guys are all over the place, and when I talk to my friends in different sports, the things that they are always blown away at is our schedule. You know, so like as an example, we played 58 games in 61 days uh, between April and May. Um, and he played double headers, but you know, the, the major league baseball season at 162 games is just absolutely insane. It was even more condensed last year because of the um the work stoppage. But um, you know, you're gonna see scenarios where players are, you know, 200 games in 230 days. Um, so it's a grind. And, and what's really hard that's different about hockey or or the NBA and certainly NFL, if, if you have someone who's a little bit banged up in those sports you can get them a game off and it buys them like five days. Like that's a really big deal. You roll an ankle, like you can throw the kitchen sink at it. You know, like in major league baseball, like you might roll an ankle and be doing treatments on it at 11 PM in the training room. And you have a one o'clock game the next morning, like back to backs just don't happen nearly as much as they used to in other sports. In the NFL, what do you, what do you get? You get a guy who's banged up and he doesn't practice for five days you know, you, you test the waters a little bit on Saturday and then, you know, they inject them with whatever to get him back out there on Sunday and they just lather, rinse, repeat for the entire season. Um, in baseball, you you literally can't do that um, because if you you try to wait it out, you, you only have three days to backdate an injury from an injury list standpoint. Um, and then there's always someone that's going to make up those innings. So if you're, you're, you're down an arm in the bullpen and all of a sudden your starter only gives you two innings, like those are innings that someone else has to cover or on the position player side, you've got someone who's obviously playing out of position. Maybe your fifth outfielder has to go out and play four days in a row and they're not built up to that. It's just a really hard dynamic. And that's why sometimes the injuries versus the actual injury list, like the injury list is more of a measure of, you know, kind of roster management where you have to make a call on like, you know, do I want to try to play, you know, a man down for three days because he'll be back or do I value having an extra guy there? And then, you know, teams resources play into that as well, where, you know, you have to decide what I put them on the 60 day IL instead of the, the 15 day IL, because it gives me a little bit more flexibility to a 40 man roster. So when you look at like the actual like man games lost, it's not always a reflection of the injuries that are taking place. It's probably more indicative of like a, an overall like uh, approach to, to managing how you deal with mild, moderate and severe injuries um, and the amount of risk that you're willing to take on it as an organization. So um, but baseball in general is 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 absolutely unique um, and and just so much different than other sports. Um, not just because of the the nature of the schedule, but also the forces that we're creating and the fact that like nowhere in other sports are you as reliant on a, a ligament this big, you know that that can literally undo a year and a half of an athlete's career. So there's a bunch of points that that, that you hit there that I want to circle back to, and and it's sure. it's it's very interesting this strange dichotomy. And in the last five minutes, you talked about how we're we're that we're really succeeding in sports science in terms of doing some amazing things like the fact that we're getting people creating these types of velocities and types of bat speeds and even even speed on the base paths and we're doing it in an era you would think those would be numbers we got in the pd errors and we're blowing those yeah. numbers away with yeah. just really smart sports science but at the same time we can't keep up with it in terms of the durability of it and and maybe it is just the, the repetition of it like you said in terms of the 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 wear and tear of having to do that on a regular basis versus a little more regular of a couple times or even once a week yeah absolutely it's it, it's absolutely completely at odds with one another and that's why one of the things that i come back to is the reason it's the case is because kids are broken so young you know you can do everything right but if you're dealing with a, like, all right, let's say Mike goes out and buys a brand new Ferrari and he changes the oil every day. He washes it. He does everything he possibly can 
to take care of it. But if they kind of forgot to put the brakes in there in the first place, there's probably going to be an issue at some point, no matter how pristine the fuzzy dice in the mirror are and, and how well vacuumed it is. And, and I think that's some of the stuff that we're dealing with is that so many of these kids that are actually entering the game, um, whether it's you know high school kids that are drafted or, or kids that are leaving you know the NCAA programs, um, they tend to be broken. Being honest, like this isn't just a pro baseball thing. Like if you look, the, the numbers are, are outrageous in college baseball right now. Um, to be honest, the younger levels are where the injuries are even worse. Um, it's, it's pretty eye-opening that I think uh, last year we came up on just under 300 UCL surgeries across all professional levels. So if you take all 30 major league organizations, organizations on average are about 10 per year. Of, and that's just elbows, mixing some shoulders, some thoracic outlets, you know, some some various things that, you know, that go beyond that. And it's 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 a pretty eye-opening thing. It's pretty scary that 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 TJ surgery has become almost a rite of passage. And it's not a matter of, you know, did you get it done? It's when did you get it done? Um, Which ties in with with something else that you said is talking about long term athletic development. And 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 I love that you said earlier that the the, the back in my day guys who say, oh, we didn't have these injuries back in my day. Well, you also played 18 games a year. You know, and you also threw, you know, 65 miles an hour. So explain how that heuristic of the back in my day just doesn't hold up. Like, I don't think people comprehend. And I know because I have two boys who who played all the way up to the college level. And I saw what travel ball and the showcase schedule and all that can do to somebody that that's going to have a a significant amount of, of impact on what we're seeing in those trends that you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so, so I think there's there's really two two angles, right? It's it's one. What's the direct impact, right? You know, these kids are more likely to have overuse injuries, um, you know, specific pattern overload problems. Like that, that's obviously a a very big concern when you go out and you you know you see a youth softball pitcher, you know, throwing four games in a weekend or something like that. It's just absolutely mind boggling. But then there's also the opportunity cost. Like, what else could they have been doing? Um, and, and to be honest, I even see it myself. My, I have twin eight-year-old daughters that, that are playing softball now, and they play during the softball season. You know, like we we might do a little bit of like fall, like clinic stuff, like one night a week or something like that this fall, but in, they're going to play soccer in the fall and they do gymnastics kind of throughout the year, once or twice a week, they have dance, they do all these different things, but on their team, they actually had, you know, a couple girls that were like travel ball girls. So they play on our normal team and then they're you know, they'd hop on the road and they'd go to Georgia for eight games in a weekend or something like that. And, and I'm looking at it, I'm like, man, I can't imagine driving or flying for an eight-year-old softball tournament when my, like, I could just go flip batting practice, like in the backyard to my daughters and they'd get the same benefit at that age. And, and at the same time, be able to stay close to home and, you know, experience all the good things that come with that at a young age. But, um, you know, I think the, the other aspect of it is what's getting pushed out. You know, I know I watch my daughters and they can't walk across the room without doing cartwheels. And like one of them just walks right up to me and does handstands and makes me hold her feet every day. Like it's, it's like a constant, they're craving variety in all aspects of life. They need to be stimulated, whether it's hopping in the pool or going out and riding their scooters or their bikes, whatever it is. And when you see kids that specialize, there's just so much variability that's pushed out, you know, things that they just aren't exposed to. And um, you know, I think, you know, I'm sure you guys were the same way. Like I wanted to be playing as many different sports as I possibly could at that age. And I, I had one friend that tore his ACL playing indoor soccer in like a collision in high school. That was the only ACL I had ever seen, you know, in my high school career. I didn't know they existed. Um, and, and his was a contact injury that took place. So it's just such a, a weird dynamic now to see these happening at such high rates. Hey, everybody, a quick break in the action here. Hope you're enjoying the show and we appreciate you listening. We're working hard to bring you the highest quality content and best guests every single week. So if you could do us a big favor and go and like and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts on, it would be greatly appreciated. Be sure to listen at the end of the show also to find out where you can find out more information about our courses, as well as a special discount code for all our listeners. Thanks again, and let's get back to the show. Now, I remember hearing an interview with Buck Showalter many years ago, and he might have been with the Orioles at the time, and saying he had a, a cautionary flag. And you mentioned the, the draft is, is happening as we speak. He had a cautionary flag to say, I try to, if I can, avoid those 
year long, you know, February to, to November guys who that's all they've ever lived and breathed since they were 11 years old, because they're going to usually break down. They're going to break down on your dime. Right. And, but I don't know if that's something that you can even be that selective with now, because there's, it's so far and few between define great ball players who haven't gone through that. And it's not just baseball, it's, it's basketball with AAU and, and, and so many other sports. So do you, do you have that cautionary flag for a player that's kind of had that life versus maybe that three sport athlete who's been a little more diverse? Absolutely. I mean, the research supports it. You know, there's, there's evidence to show that, you know, the difference between Northern and Southern players, and that's not just like a, a geographic thing. Like it's just the nature of what weather will allow. Like if you're a pitcher in Massachusetts, it's really hard to go throw bullpens outside against hitters in December. Um, so anecdotally, like it was much easier for me to develop arms in Massachusetts than it was in Florida because in Florida they were always like working with a private pitching coach on the side or going out and playing for a new select team it's just it's a it's an incredibly broken model but um I absolutely you know have 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 an eye on that stuff and I, I do a lot of work on the amateur draft side of things so without getting into too much detail on it but um you know that's that's a, that's something that we look at really really closely is like you know what's the likelihood this kid's going to break down but also what's what's his window of adaptation you know, if, if you're a kid who's played three sports and you're already able to compete with some of the best, and then we actually make you a full-time baseball player, there's a million different things that we can really attack to chase your upside um, in the context of baseball, the things that we're really good at. What I can't do is take a kid who's played baseball for, for 15 years exclusively and then expect him to like go out and learn how to play soccer at age 24 while, you know, we're trying to turn him into a major leaguer. That's a, that's a very upside down model. So I think you got to do a wide variety of things at a young age and it's going to, going to serve you really well. All right. So let's, let's keep going with, with the, the LTAD stuff and, and, and with baseball, you have a really unique sport and that the, the best in the world come in so many different shapes, yeah. sizes, and, and styles. And you have an MVP one year is five, six and one sixty five, And the next year he's six, seven, two seventy. So it, it wouldn't really seem that there seems to be a single prototype for success, but is there a common theme that you see when you see players coming up through the ranks from, from what, you know, the youth level to high school up into the collegiate and amateur level that you see these common threads, at least from a physical standpoint, that you see them transcending into an elite level? Yeah, it's interesting you say that. Um, you know, I don't know that there's a specific thread that, that you know, you, you'll see shortstops that don't run well, right? You know what I mean? You'll see guys that are freak athletes. Um, so they come in all shapes and sizes. You're, you're generally not going to see a lot of elite, elite hitters in the major leagues who don't have good vision. So that's something that, you know, you, you kind of picked your parents and you're given what you're given, but there, there probably are some inter interventions that will support that along. But, um, you know, I don't know that it's a purely physical discussion. The reason is a, a lot of people in, in baseball are successful because of traits and characteristics, right? Maybe it's hypermobility, maybe it's long fingers, maybe it's the ability to, you know, to manipulate the baseball differently. We've seen guys who have like a middle finger that's a, you know, inch and a half longer than other hands, other fingers on their hands. So I think that is, is a little bit of a tricky question to answer. Whereas like you look at like, you know, in the NHL, like body fat percentage predicts you know, uh, future NHL performance from the combine, right? That's probably more indicative of, do you eat right? Do you take care of yourself? All that stuff. So um, I think it's a less purely physically outcome-driven model. Um, certainly like throwing harder increases your likelihood of success. Hitting the ball harder increases your likelihood of success. But those are generally downstream from other athletic qualities. Um, but I also think that's what makes baseball beautiful is that big leaguers come in all shapes and sizes. Like you said, we've seen you know, dramatically different players win the MVP. Um, you see lefties, you see righties, you see, you know, all kinds of different crazy stuff. Um, and that's also what makes the job challenging is you've got to figure out the right mix for every player. Um, but there are, you know, certain key competencies that we hone in on. You've got to be efficient in rotation, um, you know, all those different things. But I, I, I'm very, very reluctant to say like this predicts this because every time we've tried to do that in the history of baseball, we've fallen flat on our face. Now, the other interesting thing connecting the dots with the, the LTAD stuff is um, when you see so much specialization, at least I've seen it, is that you almost see this increase in baseball skill with a with an accompanying decrease in general athleticism, to your point earlier, is that the kids who had that opportunity cost where they didn't go out and play other sports and they, they can't do other things. Um, have you seen that it, it, as being a challenge with, with some of the super specialized, you know, you have kids who are POs when they're, they're 12, 13 years old. Do you see that, that with some of this hyper-specialization, we've given away some athleticism in, in exchange? 
Uh, no doubt about it. Um, that's for sure. I mean, you have to remember too, that the best athletes are always going to be the best athletes, right? So like, I always, I, I appreciate the intention of it when they say like, oh, XYZ first rounders in the NFL draft this year were multi-sport athletes. I'm like, yeah, that's because they were freaks and they were good at absolutely everything, right? They were voted most athletic in their high school. And, um, you know, they, they, they did that because they could excel in absolutely everything. I think we need to take a step back and look at, you know, what happens when, you know, the, the mediocre athlete, you know, that wants to be really, really good, doesn't participate in other things. Those are the ones that are one trick ponies that, you know, honestly can't, you know, thrive across different mediums. And that's something we should be more concerned with. Okay. Now I want to circle back to something else that you said earlier. I just made a note of when you look mm -hmm. at injury stats for a team. Yeah. And, and I, I, you know, from my experience in, in having consulting with some NFL teams, I know we'd had situations where um, our injury stats were, were, were terrible one year and then another year they were great. And you know what we did differently? Absolutely nothing. Right. And yeah. one of the main, the main things that I saw from the inside was the team was better right? The team was better. Like, so more guys would want to do whatever they could to get on that field for the next day, as you, yeah. as you said earlier. So like in the NFL, where you have seven days, we'd have guys where it was optional to see me for, Hey, could you figure out, I'm not quite hard enough to go in that training room, but um, I'm not quite right. And I need to play this weekend. Those guys, when we, you know, when we, you know, uh, had winning seasons, I had a line of them. And then yeah. on the, the years that we were out of the playoffs early, those those years it was like yeah you know what if i go on ir i get paid the same i could be with yeah. my family and i don't have to risk my health to go out and, and and play in a meaningless game so those stats get really swayed by that and people don't yeah. see that the, the the caller who calls in to talk radio doesn't see that they just they just see injuries and numbers and say yeah. oh we're, we're injured all the time yeah i mean i think you're you need it you nailed it no doubt about it um you know i, I think what it is is just a reminder to always be focused on processes and and not outcomes, right? Because you can you can do everything right and have a guy run into a wall and you know and get hurt and and that's that and it, it counts the same. Um, you know, there's all those different you know avenues through which you know those numbers are actually you know inflated or deflated. You know, you have, you have teams that honestly will release guys when they think they're hurt, and so they'll rescue themselves. It's it's probably morally wrong, right? If a player gets hurt on your watch, you're responsible for taking care of them. But we do see those, you know, that some of those players get burned when they try to play through something, and you know they they want to keep it hush hush, and then they get released, and then they're in a terrible spot. So it goes both ways on that. Um, but you always got to be mindful that you know there there is a difference between you know, being hurt and being on the IL and being hurt and grinding through it, as you noted. But, you know, here's something also that, you know, I had Lauren Landau on my podcast and he brought up a great point is um, he was with the Broncos for years. And he said, the number one predictor of hamstrings injuries in the NFL is high speed yardage. And well, here's what we both know, right? There are NFL coaches that run their guys ragged during the week. And there are other ones that are totally into workload management that understand how to fluctuate training stress throughout the week. And you'll see, you know, huge variance based on that. So you're, you're kind of at the mercy of what your skill coach decides. The NBA is obviously like this. Baseball is a little bit different. You know, usually where that will come into play is like bullpen usage is, you know, if you have a, a manager that wants to use a bullpen like crazy and, you know, the starter gets one guy on in the second inning and he's getting somebody hot in the bullpen already. And so you look at the bullpen, it's like, oh, that guy made 52 appearances. And like, actually he made 120 because he was getting hot over and over again. He just never went in the game. So we're very big on scrutinizing that side of things. Um, and you can also look at like games played is a, is a really tricky measure um, in the sense that, you know, sometimes you might go 0 for 4 with four strikeouts and literally just walk back and forth to the dugout. And then if you're like a center fielder, right, you're backing up right and left field, then you like out a triple, you get a single, you steal second, overthrow, you go to third, like the number of high speed bouts can vary dramatically. Um, so that's something that you, you definitely have to track. Um, and sometimes guys may actually undertrain where you need to throw some additional stimuli in there so they don't detrain. And, and we know that running fast can be protective on future bouts of running fast. So it's just, it's this huge log jam of information that can all drive that final outcome. Um, you know, player age is another big one. Like younger teams will always be, you know, healthier than older teams. That's just something that's, that's very well accepted in the game. So, you know, if you're going to take on older players, you have to know that there's more risk that comes with them and you, you can't quite, you know, push them like you, you would a 25 year old. And, and to back up your point earlier, all that stuff, you know, that even if you in a perfect world could get done, and if it was the solution, that's not easy to get done when you're finishing a game at, at 1030 at night and you have to be on a plane and then play the next day. Mm -hmm. When is this actually getting done? 
right? Yeah, we, so, we had a we had an interesting um, experience last year. I mentioned there was a, there was a major league baseball lockout, and so the season uh, was shortened a little bit in the context of spring training. But what they all had to do is they had to make up for the first two series of the year which had been missed because the season got going later. So what they actually did was they shortened the all-star break and added a, a double header in. So instead of being a four-day all-star break, it actually was a three-day one. And what happened was the first day off the all-star break, we went and we played in Houston. We played a double header. And then after that game, we flew overnight to Baltimore and played a seven o'clock game. So we actually played three games in 30 hours in two different time zones. Um, so it's, it, that's, that's, that's hard to do if you're in one place, at like a tournament, just from like field scheduling and all that stuff. And that's, that's at the highest level. They're all, you know, hotly contested games and all that stuff. So it's just very eye opening that that can actually happen, um, you know, at these highest levels, but you're right. Like, you, you know, you gotta do treatments, you gotta do all these different things. And, um, you know, the travel is another big, uh, big determinant of how players feel and perform. Yeah, because on top of all that, you you see injury statistics that show when you get below that threshold of sleep hours and quality yeah. sleep, the, the number of injuries that go up. So you have to factor that in as well. And you're not sometimes getting the best sleep when you're going on planes, trains, and automobiles to get from one place to the other. So, you know, I know even some teams have have changed their schedules. And I think one of the Yankees early on, were one of the first teams to, to jump ahead of that, right. With, in terms of, uh, and making sure that that sleep was prioritized as opposed to the more militant, Hey, let's get af up and after it at the 6am kind of workout type of deal. Yeah. So, some of it's very controllable and some of it isn't. Um, so yeah, we, we do scrutinize things pretty aggressively and the players all get information about how to optimally design their sleep as they travel. But you look at like, then the thing about the Yankees is we always seem to put butts in the seats, you know, so they, they generally sell well wherever we go. So you're not going to play a lot of one o'clock getaway games where you can actually have an easier adjustment. Usually what you're going to do is you're going to play at seven o'clock. The game's going to end at 10, 15. There's going to be treatments, post-game media, all that stuff. And you're not going to probably get on a flight until, you know, most cases 12 um, to go to wherever the next city is. So it's, it's a lot of overnight flying and, you know, late arrivals to the to the stadium or wherever the new town is to go to your hotel room and sleep from you know five to 11 a.m and then you know go back to the park and do it again in a, in a few hours so um, other teams have the benefits of playing a lot of one o'clock games but that you know you also look at like the seattle mariners who fly more miles than anybody else you know that's you know a hard dynamic if you're the mariners and you got to go play a game in in tampa bay um you know you got a, a lengthy flight with three hours you know difference it's it's a lot to adjust to that's uh, the the glamorous side that people don't see, and uh, and then and then you factor that into uh, why today's game is so much different than than you know, go back in the days when you're talking about 12, 14 teams that didn't have to travel as much and had more spread out schedules. It's it's a very different world, and but I think there's also um you know there's more more working in their favor as well. Like we have better nutrition. Um, certainly the the hotels are better. The travel dynamic is as as good as it can be. And from a sports medicine standpoint, like, you know, players in the eighties, they didn't have diagnostic ultrasound in the training room, you know, they maybe they had x-rays on site, but, you know, they didn't have access to, to PRP and, you know, other biological interventions that can help the cause. Um, so there is more access to, to sports medicine resource. We just know more, right. Where someone who had thoracic outlet in the early eighties kind of just dealt with it and, or, you know, they retired because they couldn't figure it out. And nowadays it's a, you know, an intervention that could potentially save their career. So I think, you know, there's, there's a little bit of a give and take that we, we do have to recognize that there are some positive outcomes that are, that are trending in the right direction. It's funny. You mentioned something. There was, there was a guy I, I used to have who's uh, uh, he told me the the vast difference he had between the minor league level and the, and the major league level. And you talk about, you know, across the board, when you said access to nutrition, like, you know, when he got, he, he sent me the menu when he got, you know, called up and he got, he was there at the four seasons in LA. And he said, this is what I get to pick from. He said, when I was in low A ball, I got what was ever left at the snack bar, like the peanuts and popcorn yeah. and, and pizza. So like, that's a different thing to manage, right? When yeah. you're talking about these, these guys are on a, on a very different plane when they're riding on buses, that makes it even harder. And they don't have yeah. access to the things that you have. They don't have catered and, 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 you know, planned out meals at, at, at every level at, at every different venue. 
Yeah, and it's it's certainly not a homogenous experience across all organizations. Um, you know, and, and to be fair, the, the minor league lifestyle has improved dramatically over the last couple of years where players are getting housing and the transportation is better and all that stuff. But yeah, it's still not the big leagues. You know, there's incentive to get to the big leagues on a number of fronts, and that's certainly one of them. But um, you know, I, I do think it's uh it's something that's heading in the right direction. But yeah, you see very different experiences across, you know, different organizations. We've traded for players that come over and say, Oh my gosh, like I didn't I know what the big leagues were until I got here. Um, so it's, you know, it's a, it's a, a big picture conversation for sure. Absolutely. So um, I don't want to sound like I'm monopolizing the conversation. Mike just texted me. He's having some issues with his internet. So I'm just riding it throughout. And since we're on nutrition yeah. and before we wrap it up, I got to know from the master, what makes the best meatball? <laughs> what are the, what are the qualities of a very good meatball? That's funny. We, we actually do a lot of our own. I, in fact, I wrote an article, I think it's called the 10 laws of meatball mastery. If anybody really wants to go in depth on this stuff, but we'll use like grass fed beef, usually use almond flour. And the nice thing is you can throw in a bunch of different vegetables. So we'll usually use like spinach always works well. Uh, onions always work well. You can mix in like peppers, you know, sliced up carrots, stuff like that and mix it up. Um, and the nice thing is you can, it's kind of poetic license. Once you've got meat and it's in a ball shape, um, you can kind of go and uh, you can rock some some hot sauce on it. You can use marinara. You can use regular spaghetti sauce, whatever you want to do. But I tend to be like a hot sauce guy. So I'd hate to it. disagree with the master, but I'm very <laughs> anti-carrot, especially near my meatballs. Um, <laughs> and, then own, right? and then and bake, bake, fry. Uh, what do we do? How do we do it? Uh, we usually bake them. And, and they're more like meat boulders. You can, you could eat them like an apple if you needed to. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it, it works a little bit better when you're trying to get a little bit of bulk out of them. Fantastic. Well, can't thank you enough for your time. And before we wrap things up, I, in, in addition to all the 18 jobs that you have, do you have anything other, other than that in the, in terms of new and exciting things coming up in 2023? Yeah, for sure. We're actually working through some, some pretty exciting additional facility renovations at our Florida location, just to kind of keep improving the, uh, the athlete experience, particularly as we, we've kind of grown exponentially and there's not enough office space for our staff. So we're trying to build that out a little bit better. And then honestly, getting back a little bit more to, to speaking, um, you know, kind of product creation, some of that stuff too. So uh, kind of pulled back on it since the pandemic and I'm excited to, to get back to teaching a little bit more. Well, definitely let us know about that so we can get the word out. I want to thank you again, Eric, for your time. This has been awesome. And want to thank you for listening. And this has been the Principles of Performance podcast. Thank you for listening to the Principles of Performance podcast. If you've enjoyed our content, please like and share on your social media outlets as well as subscribe and give us a review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to. For more information on the Principles of Program Design courses and workshops, visit us at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com and follow us on all of the social media channels where we post new content every day. To save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code PRINCIPLESPODCAST10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principlesofprogramdesign.com or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.